It's good to be with you this afternoon slash evening. I guess I'll call it this evening since it's dark out. Uh, it's good to be able to preach to you for the first time uh, as, as one of your pastors. And uh, it is good to be with you this, e- this evening. I actually didn't know if I'd be here today. Sarah and I were taking a nice, lovely kind of stroll through Clifton Park this morning. And as we turned one corner, we were almost stampeded by nothing other than uh, about a hundred Santa Clauses on a race which was one of the more odd things I've seen since I've been here. But we quickly dashed out of the way and Facebooked it so everybody could see on social media what we were doing, and, and alas, we were here. So it's good to be with you tonight. Um, and I wanted to start by saying this sermon is going to be a little bit different than most of the talks we do here, uh, especially if you don't go here on a regular basis. What we usually do is go through a book of the Bible, uh, and we, we take that book and we, we teach through it chapter by chapter until we've basically taught through the whole book. Um, but today I'm going to start uh, a two-part mini-series, a mini-Advent series. Advent just uh, refers to the time leading up to Christmas. We reflect on the Advent, the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, and as we anticipate his second coming, which is his second Advent. Uh, but today I'm going to take a more thematic look at what it means to be made in the image of God. And not only what it means to be made in the image of God, but how God restores his image in becoming a man himself. That girl is the spitting image of her father. That's what an elderly lady said to me right after our firstborn uh, daughter, who was making all the noise over there, right right over there. She just went out, thankfully. Um, Her name is Jane. And uh, right after uh, they saw her for the first time, she says, that's the spitting image of her father. It made me happy. I like the thought of that this little girl that I, in some small earthly way, helped bring into this world, in some small way, reflected me. Of course, as she's grown, Sarah and, I, Sarah and I have realized how much more than just her physical appearance, but her behavior, unfortunately, as you've seen this already this morning or this afternoon, and, and even her personality has been shaped and even reflects us even more than just her appearance. There is something indescribably beautiful in the fact that our children, in some way, reflect us, even in our imperfect images that that we are. I think we all recognize that to bear that image, to to be a child or to be a family member, carries some amount of responsibility with it. I remember walking out the door as as a young teenager with my friends, and my dad would look me in the eye and say, Luke, remember who you are. What was he saying? What was he saying when he said, Luke, remember who you are tonight? He was saying, Luke, when you go out and do all the things that you're doing tonight, in some small way, you're a reflection, not on just yourself, but on the whole family. Now, we might like this, or we might be a little bit adverse to this notion, but I think deep down we all have a desire to meet the expectations of our mentor or our parents, and in some way it brings fulfillment to know we have reflected them accurately. So in this first sermon on Advent, we're going to explore the question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And why does it matter? At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if you're a great reflector of your mom or dad. After all, they're sinners just like you. But ultimately, we have one parent, a creator, a father, who formed us and who loved us And he gave us one singular task. And that singular task, that singular purpose, 
is what we're going to look at this evening. So I have three fairly easy points this, this evening. If I say this morning, it's because for 27 years I've been preaching Sunday services in the morning. So just pretend I'm saying in the evening, okay? I'm just going to say that because I think I've already said it once or twice. Is that correct? Okay, well, anyways. <clears throat> three, easy, three easy points. First, God created mankind for a purpose. Second, mankind failed to fulfill that purpose. And third, God became a man to fulfill that purpose. So first, God created mankind. I think I'm also a rookie at using a PowerPoint. So if this goes poorly, that's on me as well. God created mankind for a purpose. If we're going to explore the purpose of mankind, why we're here, what we're made for, we'll need to go to the account of our origins, right? Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we see God speak. And then, as soon as he speaks, creation bursts into existence. He creates light out of darkness, land, water, and sky, vegetation for the land, and stars for the sky. And then, he forms all kinds of animals to fill the land, the sea, and the sky, doesn't he? But he reaches his creative climax on day six. He saves his best and prized creation for last when he creates mankind. And we're going to read about it in Genesis 1, 26 through 31. If you, uh, you can certainly follow along, but I have the, the text up here as well. Then God said, Let us make man in our image in our, and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with the seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. <clears throat> what makes humanity unique in God's creation is precisely that we're made in the image of God. We're image bearers. We know this is important. It's, it's our identity. It's our purpose. The purpose of humanity hinge upon this opening chapter of the Bible. But what exactly does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, there are some clues in the text, and we're going to get to those. But just like any ancient text, we won't understand it fully unless we understand it as the ancient readers, the ancient readers to whom it was first given, would have understood it themselves. If you lived in the ancient Near East, this was written in the ancient Near East, you would have been immediately aware of what an image of a god was. It was a way to describe the king or the son of a king who represented a god. Ancient Egyptian kings were considered to be the very sons of a particular god. In fact, the king bore the image of the god himself. This didn't mean that the king resembled the appearance of the god, but rather his character. He represented his rule. 
then the king would pass his image down to his firstborn son, who would then be considered made in the image of the same God. You'll even see instances of Egyptian kings uh, setting up a large image, think like a statue, in a country that they had conquered. So when they had conquered a, a, a country that that they weren't going to be physically present in, they would set up a large statue, and, and that statue would say to all the people in that conquered land, I'm the ruler here. This represents my rule. When you're looking for who, the authority figure, see this. You can even think of stories from the Bible, right, where you see that, like Nebuchadnezzar, right? <clears throat> Anyways, to be made in an image of a god, or to be an image of a god meant that you represented the god's rule or you were the son who ruled on his behalf. And I, see, I think we see this confirmed in the text as well. So let's look closely at the, at the verses we just read. Look at verse 27. Then God said, Let us make man... Here, let me go back. Let, it, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Notice that man is uniquely responsible to rule over all the creation that has preceded him. Fish in the sea, birds in the sky, animals in the land. In verse 27, humanity is called not just to be the image of God, but to spread the image of God by making more image bearers. Be fruitful and increase in number, verse 27. Fill the earth, but not only fill the earth, subdue it. Again, that's another royal term. That's what a king would subdue his land. God created the world, and then he puts his small image bear in the world and says, spread my image across the kingdom and spread my rule across the kingdom. Of course, you have to remember, in the context, subduing the earth is not exploiting the earth. It's not abusing it. It's not using it for your own gain. Subduing the earth was gardening. Adam was the first gardener in Eden. He was to rule, subdue, garden as God's representative. He was to take care of the earth, but not, but not just the earth, all of God's creation, including other men and women made in the image of God. We don't see this only in Genesis 1. Let's turn to Psalm 8. Let's see. There you go. And if you have your Bibles, you feel free to turn to Psalm 8, but it's also here as well. In Psalm 8... Israel's king, King David, is gazing into the stars on a clear night in the middle of, of Jerusalem. And he's in absolute awe of God's creation. And it struck him. And then he has a profound thought. In the first verses, he says it. What is man that you are mindful of? We're weak, small, seemingly insignificant. Why do you even think about mankind in light of this incredible universe he's looking at? But David reflects on Genesis 1, the text we just read. And this is what he says in Psalm 8, 5 through 8. Yet you have made them, that's mankind, a little lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him, man, Dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path, paths of the sea. David is saying, you crowned humanity with glory and honor. 
you've given the mankind the right and responsibility to reflect God and to represent your rule over all creation. So we're small and seemingly insignificant, but we have the most significant task in the entire world. What an amazing purpose. So what do we learn from all this? What do we learn from the fact that we've been made as the image bearers of God? Well, first we learn that we're creative. We're utterly dependent creatures. We're self-governing. And we're made for a purpose. And we're accountable to God to live for that purpose. One of the things I've noticed here is you don't just get to choose your purpose in life. You may be hearing people say things like that, right? Like, I just need to find my purpose in life, and then I'll have fulfillment, and then I'll do this, and then I'll do this. I just need to find my purpose. And to some level, right, that's totally innocent. It totally just means I want to find a new direction. But ultimately, I hope you realize you don't get to choose your purpose in life. God has chosen it for you. Imagine... If when I came over, I, I, I responded to a job advertisement, advertisement, I should say, from Ian and Ian for a pastoral position. And I had a clear job description, and I responded to that, and they interviewed me, and I came here, and I preached, and you guys accepted for me to come. But imagine if I came all the way from, from the States a few weeks ago, and on the first week here, I got into the office, and I said, listen, Ian and Ian, great job description, love it, I'm so glad I have a salary, so glad I'm able to provide for my family, but listen, I love painting. I love painting. And I just think I can do this church more good if I paint all day. Paint beautiful Rotherham, maybe just the Minster. Uh, paint beautiful Wellgate, you know. And I think that should be my purpose. Ian would have looked at me and said, you're a nutter. You're totally nuts. You can't do that. We're, we're, we're having you come here for a specific job with a specific task, and you have to do that. And if you don't do it, you're going to get fired. We all understand that when we apply for a job or when we go somewhere for a specific task, we're accountable to that boss, given that job description. Well, God has given mankind one universal job description to reflect him and to represent his rule. God is our creator, and he's given us that singular task, and it's a glorious task with a glorious destiny. Secondly, we see that we have an identity from these verses. We are created to be sons. Image bearers are sons of God. They're part of God's family. To be made in the image of God is to be sons and daughters of the creator of the universe. See, you're created to be an intimate relationship, not this distant, cold, it's not just a judge and a ruler. He's to be a father and a son and a daughter. So we have an identity. But that identity comes with a function. As God's children, we're created to rule, and more importantly, represent God's rule. Adam did this by caring for the animals, and by naming the animals. He did this by tending to the Garden of Eden. Even more, part of his royal responsibility is to other humans. Adam was to protect Eve. To reflect God's rule is to reflect his character. His justice, his love, his compassion, his unswerving holiness, his absolute purity. You and I, what we're called to do day in and day out, is to be mirrors to the rest of the world that points to God. 
So when you're struggling to find meaning in the daily grind of life, you get up morning after morning after morning after morning for the same seemingly insignificant job. Remember that your ultimate purpose is not merely to write emails or flip burgers or give maths lessons or analyze data. Your ultimate purpose is in the 50-plus interactions you have every day with every person you come in contact with or just in the works of your hands where no one comes in contact with to show God's character, his justice, his kindness, his love, his mercy, his holiness, his purity. It makes every day of a mundane job, flicking, flipping burgers or analyzing data or doing graphic design into a monumental task displaying the king of the universe. It makes the daily grind somehow evaporate. Lastly, we learn from this that we are created good. Verse 31. God saw all that he had made. And he said it was good. The image was unblemished by sin. He designed his image perfectly. So we learn that God has created for or God has created us for a purpose in our first point. But we continue reading Genesis and we quickly learn that number 2, mankind failed to fulfill that purpose. Oh, yeah, there we go. Mankind failed to fulfill that purpose. Most of you know the story. Genesis 1 ends with everything was good. We just talked about that, right? And then the first few words of Genesis 3 are this. Now the serpent was more crafty. And you know the villains arrived. First he questions God's trustworthiness. Did God really say to you? Then he questions God's goodness. God knows, Adam and Eve, that you're going to be like him. He's holding you back, Adam and Eve. So in a strange turn of events from Genesis 1, we now see the animal kingdom taking dominion over the man. It's a total reversal of Genesis 1. And rather than Adam protecting Eve from the serpent, he, he follows her headlong into rebellion, doesn't he? This is called the fall of man. In response, God offers a series of judgments upon Adam and Eve by making their task of dominion even more difficult than it already is. So first, we see Genesis 3.15. This is a judgment on them. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the seed of the woman. So Adam was created to have dominion over the animals, and now there's going to be hostility in that relationship. Genesis 3.16, speaking to the woman, he says, you will have, cha- you have pain in childbirth. Part of humanity's task is to spread God's image, be fruitful and multiply. Now this has become a difficult, even dangerous task. Speaking to Adam, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. It's going to grow through thorns and thistles. So Adam's dominion over the earth now will be taxing. And it will be strenuous. Still talking in, 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 to Adam in uh, verse 19, he says, To dust you will return. You won't have dominion over the ground anymore. In fact, the ground will eventually swallow you up, Adam. To dust you will return. 
humanity rebelled and God's image has been marred and broken. And then we get there a few chapters later, Genesis 5.3. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and named him Seth. Adam now passes his corrupt image onto his sons and onto his sons, and it starts a worldwide mess. Corrupt images of God going through the universe. So I want to summarize quickly what's happened thus far in the Bible story. God created a world, and then he made that world. In that world, he made this beautiful, smaller place called Eden, the Garden of Eden. Eden was like a miniature version of his heavenly kingdom. And then he makes an image of himself, and he places his image in the garden to rule over the garden. The garden is supposed to be a place where perfect justice and kindness and purity reign. And then as God's image multiplies and increases in number, the idea is that the borders of Eden grow and grow and grow until Eden subsumes the entire creation. And the entire creation looks like God's perfect kingdom, his heavenly kingdom. But God's image bears, rather than reflecting God's perfect rule, they try to replace God. They try to knock him off his throne. They try to be independent of their creator. And God drives them out of the garden. And from there, they were fruitful. And they did multiply. But it was the image of God corrupted and marred that spread throughout the world. And it doesn't stop with Adam and Eve. The Old Testament basically tells basically one story. Mankind consistently rebels against their creator. They don't want to be accountable to God. They don't want to represent God. Like Adam and Eve, they want to be God. What does God do? Well, he wipes them out with a worldwide flood. Except for one family. Noah and his family. He saves them and he, he begins creation anew with just one family. It's as if there, he started over with a new Adam, who's Noah. Noah gets off the boat, gets drunk, impregnates his daughter. Well, that didn't last very long. What does he do? Then God chooses one nation, a royal nation. A nation that God calls his own son in Exodus 4. Then we read statements like this from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 32, 30. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Where does this leave us? We're created for an amazing purpose, an amazing destiny. Co-rulers over creation with the king of the universe. But humanity has failed to live up to their job description at every stage in history. Sounds hopeless. Sounds despairing, really. To be created for so much and to fail so miserably time and time 
and time again. So really, where, where does this leave us? Well, God had to break into the story. God had to break into the story himself. Why? God had to become a man in order to restore his image on earth. That's our last point. God became a man to fulfill his purpose. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus took on flesh, on human flesh, to become the true image of God. When all had failed to represent God and his rule on earth, Jesus became a perfect reflection of his Father's heart. He had no sin, no blemishes. He brought peace and healing. He was just, like God, and merciful. He was unswervingly committed to his Father. And even more importantly, his Father's plan for redemption. But Jesus didn't become a man merely to reveal the true image of God. He did. He revealed the true image of God. But he came to restore the image of God in you. God shows up in Bethlehem in nappies, in a feeding trough, so that God's image could be restored in you. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, and that's where we're going to be for the last point, the author of Hebrews reflects on the very same question that David did in Psalm 8. Why has God crowned us, humanity, small and insignificant as we are, with glory and honor? Why has he given us this task to rule over creation on his behalf? But the author of Hebrews sees a dilemma with this. Let's read it. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, and, he, and that somewhere is, is Psalm 8. Okay? And he's about to quote Psalm 8 right here, the part that we just read. Remember, Psalm 8 is a reflection on Genesis 1. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them, mankind, a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. The author is saying, isn't this incredible? The glory, the destiny that we've been given as humans? The responsibility of reflecting his reign and his kingdom? He continues, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subjected to, subject to them. So we're made to rule over everything. He emphasizes the actual, the cosmic scope of this. We're made to rule over everything. But here is the dilemma. Yet at present, sorry, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subjective to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. He gives us a reality check, doesn't he? God's image bearers were designed to reflect God's rule and his kingdom and creation, but it just hasn't happened. Anybody can look at this job task and say, listen, no one's done that. The ground still swallows us up at the end of our life. Those who were made in God's image are still unjust. So where does that leave us? And he gives the answer to the dilemma in verse 9. 
But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. That means he became man. Now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you see what happened? The image of God from Genesis 1, Psalm 8, that we just read, wasn't finally fulfilled by Adam. He failed. Wasn't image of God wasn't finally fulfilled by his sons. Or Noah. Or Abraham. Or David. Or Israel. Certainly not by all mankind. The image of God was finally fulfilled by Jesus. And he had to take on human form to do that. He is the one who is truly crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is the one to whom God put everything under his feet as a footstool. Jesus is the true king whose reign actually represents and reflects his father's reign. But the author of Hebrews doesn't stop there. He gives the reason Jesus took on human flesh and was crowned with glory and honor. Where does he give the reason? Because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus became a man for you so that you, so that he could do what you couldn't do. Namely, image God. Then he died for you because you could never live up to the task. And the beauty is, in dying, Jesus purifies you. He gives us his spirit and begins renewing in us the image of Christ. God's true image. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, Christ. Do you want God's image to be restored in you? Do you want to fulfill God's ultimate purpose for your life? These are kind of big stakes this evening. The reality is you can't do it on your own. You have to trust in Christ's life and his death to stand in your place. His life, his image-bearing, must be your life. Must be your image-bearing. His death must be your death. How does that happen? That sounds great, Luke. How? Turn away from your sin. Put your trust in Christ. His life for the life that you couldn't live. His death for the punishment you deserved. His resurrection for the hope that you too will be raised as a perfect, whole image of God. If you're a Christian here today, if you're a member of this church, we all know this because we feel it experientially, but you still bear the image of Adam, the marred, corrupt image of Adam. But day by day, you have the Spirit of Christ in you, renewing you into the image of himself. That's a, that's a long, slow process. So be patient, but it has a sure and a certain end. 
in this Advent season, in this season leading up to Christmas, should have hope, Christian, have hope. That through all your failures, all your failed dreams, all your inconsistent living, that Christ's first Advent, his first Advent, his coming in a manger, was the beginning of God restoring his image in you. And in a twinkling of an eye, in his second advent, in his second coming, you will be raised incorruptible. Your destiny will become reality. You'll reflect God in all his beauty. The ground that swallowed you up in death will finally give way. The, the dominion that you were supposed to have the ground, but the ground has had dominion over you. It swallowed you up in death. It will finally give way. And all the resurrected image bearers of God will rule with Christ over his new creation. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect back on you taking on human flesh for us, leaving the throne of splendor that you had and taking a throne in a manger and then, of course, ultimately on a cross. Lord, give us hope that in dying, you have begun restoring your image in us. You revealed the true image and now you're restoring it in us. Lord, help us be patient with ourselves and with one another, as that is a long and slow process. But through all the mundane activities of life, through all the inconsistent living, through all the the pains, failed dreams, all the rest, give us hope. Give us hope that what you have promised you will do will happen. Let our eyes be fixed on the final stage when as resurrected, true image bearers of God, we rule over your creation that is just, that is merciful, that is totally loving, that is totally holy, and is entirely pure. Lord, we look forward to this day, even as we sing our final song. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.